I'm David Powers, the Dean of the College of Arts and Sciences here at Seattle U. It's my great pleasure to welcome you tonight on behalf of the three schools and colleges that came together to bring you this event. The Sullivan School of Law and their Dean Annette Clark, the School of Theology and Ministry and Dean Mark Marcouli, and the College of Arts and Sciences and the staff and students who volunteered tonight. I also want to particularly highlight and thank our wonderful community partner, Elliott Bay Books. We're very pleased to continue to offer timely and topical presentations together like this evening's program, and very much look forward to hearing from Secretary Kerry, who, by the way, spoiler alert, is Jesuit educated. <laughs> right. I want you to be aware that KUOW is recording tonight's event for broadcast at a later date. You may also notice that we've provided index cards so you can write down questions and pass them to ushers during the event. Our moderator, Mark Marcouli, Dean of the School of Theology and Ministry, is dedicating time in the conversation for those questions, so please jot one down if you like. It's now my pleasure to welcome to the stage Father Steve Sunborg, President of Seattle University. Thank you very much, David, and uh, welcome to Seattle University. Um, our mission at Seattle University is we're dedicated to educating the whole person to professional formation and to empowering leaders for a just and humane world. And so this is a particularly appropriate place for uh, Secretary Kerry to be speaking this evening, and it's an honor to be able to have him here. We're doing great at Seattle University, and the speakers we're able to bring here, and they manage to stay in the news after they are here, like James Comey and uh, Secretary <laughs> Kerry. John Kerry's example of public service aligns with our commitment to service at Seattle U. Here it's grounded in our Catholic faith and our Jesuit heritage, and it's explored in an ecumenical and an interreligious dialogue kind of a way. So we look at topics through the lenses of many different religions and philosophies and humanistic viewpoints. Tonight's event is co-sponsored by three Seattle University schools, the College of Arts and Sciences, the School of Theology and Ministry, and the School of Law. And each of these schools embraces public service in the Seattle University education of its students and the formation of our alumni. I also want to thank, as did David, the Elliott Bay Book Company, one of the premier independent bookstores of the nation and a great and generous partner with Seattle University that has brought this opportunity to host John Kerry on the stage tonight. We all look forward to the conversation, so let me welcome to the stage Dean Annette Clark of the Seattle University School of Law to introduce Secretary Kerry. Thank you very much. I have the singular honor of introducing both our moderator and our special guest this evening. Our moderator, Dr. Mark S. Marcouli, has been Dean and Professor of the School of Theology and Ministry at Seattle University since 2007. Dr. Marcouli is specialized in interdisciplinary areas of study, particularly cognitive science and religion, the interface between educational psychology, sociology, and anthropology with theology and religion, and the application of religious insight to other professional fields such as criminal justice, specifically in the area of restorative justice. Tonight's honored guest, Senator John Kerry is a graduate of Yale University and of Boston College Law School. That's the Jesuit connection. 
He enlisted in the US Navy in 1966, served in Vietnam as a Navy lieutenant, and returned home as a decorated but deeply disillusioned veteran. He went on to serve as a prosecutor in Massachusetts, then as lieutenant governor, and he was elected to the United States Senate in 1984, eventually serving five terms. In 2004, he was the Democratic presidential nominee, and as we all know, he came within one state, that of Ohio, of winning the election. Senator Kerry returned to the Senate, chaired the important Foreign Relations Committee, and succeeded Hillary Clinton as Secretary of State in 2013. In that position, he endeavored to find peace in the Middle East, dealt with the Syrian civil war while combating ISIS, and negotiated the Paris Climate Agreement and the Iran nuclear deal. In fact, his continuation of the latter work has garnered a great deal of media attention over the course of the past few days, making his appearance here this evening particularly timely. Senator Kerry is currently a distinguished fellow for global affairs at Yale University, as well as the inaugural visiting distinguished statesman for the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. He and his wife, Teresa Hines Carey, have two daughters, three sons, and seven grandchildren. He is notably the author of a new book, Every Day is Extra, a title that is drawn from the lessons he and his closest friends from the Vietnam War shared with each other. His book has been described as a powerful and moving memoir that provides an intimate account of his remarkable and public service-filled American life. On behalf of Seattle University, welcome to Dr. Mark Cooley and Senator Kerry. Thank you. We're honored to have you here. And I, I was wondering if you, could, um, if you could talk to us a little bit about why you feel that this memoir uh, needs to be written at this particular time. I feel that people need to hear me, so I'm moving this mic over. That's what I feel at this particular moment of time. <laughs> um, first of all, a huge thank you to Elliott Bay, to Seattle University, Father Sundberg, thank you so much. It's uh, wonderful to be here. Annette, thank you for a generous introduction. Uh, and thank you all for coming to share thoughts. Uh, can't think of anything more important right now in our country than to have a civil dialogue. Uh, and so uh, I, so I'm really, really happy to be here. Yes, I do have a little Jebby uh, education. Uh, I went to Boston College Law School and enjoyed it enormously and learned how to think, I must say. I didn't know how to think. Isn't that an awful thing to say? I went to Yale University. I didn't know how to think, but I didn't. It wasn't until I went to law school that I began to get a more rigorous discipline in how to analyze and think of things. I think that's true of probably law schools everywhere. At any rate, Mark, thank you. Appreciate it. I'm glad you're doing this. So what, why, why, yes, why, you asked yeah, me a question. Why, why, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, if, if you just want to pass over some of these, just let me know. No, 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 no. Uh, I thought it was important to write this book now uh, and, and to be as personal and direct as I could 
because that's not happening in America, first of all. And secondly, um, we're in trouble right now. Uh, I hate to say that. I, I want to begin by saying to you that as I say it, I am profoundly optimistic about what we can do and where we can go. And I believe the, the book I wrote is the antidote to where we are today. That's why I wrote this book now. Because I think in the life I've been privileged to lead, beginning with my parents who were both remarkably civic oriented, my dad in the Foreign Service, Army Air Corps during World War II, uh, volunteered among the first people in 1939, my mother born in Paris, the daughter of an old Boston family that uh, was working abroad, engaged in business in Europe, uh, and, and felt the onslaught of this war. And I, uh, my first experience, which I write about in the book, was walking, holding the first memory I had as a child, four years old. It was being in uh, France after the war, uh, walking through the ruins of my mother's home where she had lived holding her hand, feeling, hearing the glass crunch under my feet, uh, and seeing a stairwell go up into the sky on one end, and seeing a, a tower go up, a, a chimney go up in the other end, and that was all that was left of the house, and my mother was crying. And I didn't know why. And if you're four years old, that upsets you. So it stuck with me. It was my first sort of childhood understanding of war. And then I went to the beaches of Normandy. My, my father took me there, and I saw the detritus of World War II on that beach. I bet you there aren't many people in this room who could say that or remember that. So um, it, it, all of this had an impression on me, and uh, I grew up in a period which some of you here also grew up in. Uh, my freshman year at college, we almost went to war with the Soviet Union over Cuba. My sophomore year at college, I was sitting on the bench. I played on the soccer team. And I'd just come back from, from playing. I was substituted. I sat on the bench. And I suddenly heard a ripple in the stands saying the president had been shot. And within half an hour, that had turned to a whisper uh, of the president is dead. So we lived through that. We then went through sophomore year, junior year, uh, where in the South, we saw the dogs chewing people who were demonstrating for the right to vote. And we sent people down there. We became engaged in the Civil Rights Movement. We, we funded buses for the Freedom Rides. We engaged in the Mississippi Voter Registration Drive. We made a difference. And then senior year, suddenly the war in Vietnam descended on us, and we had to make decisions. It was 1965, uh, before the anti-war movement had really grown in power before the first draft cards were burned, and I had the sense of duty and obligation as the son of greatest generation parents. So this book traces that journey, and the reason for it now is that I think it is, in, in the way I tried to conduct myself, but more importantly in the way the Senate used to be, the, 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 the place I grew up in, where there were still some great old names in the Senate, and we worked together. There was no punishment for working across the aisle. There was no orthodoxy of one caucus over another. 
we welcome the notion of compromise because that is the only way to make a democracy work. And we got things done. So um, I, I think that uh, this book uh, can help you to sense, okay, there is something we can all do individually. Remember, when I came back from the war in 1969, uh, Richard Nixon was president, having promised that he had a secret plan for peace. Uh, the only promise he kept, it was still a secret by 1972. <laughs> and we felt very strongly, obviously, when I came back, and I write about it in the book. I got a letter about three weeks after I got back and one of my best friends in Vietnam had been killed. One of the guys who was in the actions with me and uh, who didn't approve of the war. He had luckily just had a visit uh, with his wife, his new wife, met his six-week-old child in Hawaii, um, and uh, was hit in a river. We were always in the rivers. We were always getting shot at. And he was hit directly by a B-40 rocket, killed instantly. The boat went out of control, rammed into the beach right in front of the ambush, hand-to-hand -hand combat. It was a miserable night. A bunch of people were wounded, several others killed. And uh, a great friend of mine, who's a lawyer in Alabama now, wrote me. He was one of the other people who was with me in a lot of the action, uh, and described Don's death. And, and I was in New York, aide to an admiral. And I said, you know, I, I can't stay. I can't do this anymore. I felt compelled to get out of the Navy, compelled to go do something to end the war. And, and that moment triggered in me the activism that has characterized most of my life. So, uh, but I'll tell you, in 1971, when we demonstrated against the war, when I led 5,000 veterans to Washington, and we camped on the mall, and we defied Richard Nixon by staying there and sleeping overnight, even though they said we couldn't and we didn't have a permit, and we challenged them to remove us. And they didn't dare remove 5,000 veterans and arrest them. So we made our point. We stayed there for five days. We cleaned up after ourselves. We left the place as clean as we found it. We planted a tree. Uh, left it better than we found it. And um, it had a profound impact on the nation. It helped to turn the war, in effect. But that was not easy back then, folks. Richard Nixon carried. 49 states for re-election in 1972. He was powerful. He had an enemies list. He was attacking the Justice Department. He fired the special prosecutor. And you now see the bigotry and the language that accompanied his decisions when you see the tape or hear the tapes from his presidency. Ironically, Richard Nixon taped himself. Uh, Trump has Amorosa. Uh, uh, so, so I believe uh, here's the meaning of it all. I'm sorry to take so, but here's the meaning of it. I, I give you the big message that I think I want you to take away from tonight. Frankly, remember this number, fifty-four point two. Fifty-four point two is the percentage of eligible Americans who saw fit to exercise their privilege of voting in 2016. When Barack Obama won in 2008, 
it was 62.3% turnout. When I ran and lost by that one state, it was 60.3%. When Barack Obama was reelected in 2012, it was 57.5%. You get the drift. The story of what is happening in America today is not the story of people who voted, it's the story of people who didn't vote. And I'll tell you something, our democracy can only work if American citizens decide to exercise the rights and privileges of one of the single most important words in our language, citizen. You've got to go out and vote, and that is how we will rescue our democracy. And in 50 days from today, we have the greatest course correction opportunity we have had in years, if not ever. We have to go out and make the difference. That's how we do it. Thank you. So, so uh, it, it, I'd like to kind of get into the book just a little bit. It's, it's really a... Um, it is why we're here, right? It is why we're here. <laughs> Uh, which, which you treat, you treat these issues very, um, uh, very, with a great deal of polish. I can tell that you were Jesuit trained with the, with the way you write. Um, your, your, book, your book begins with a, with a very poignant deathbed uh, vigil that you and your family is having at your, at your fa as your father is dying. And, and in reading the book, I couldn't help but noting that it, it seemed to be a, a kind of a, almost a meditation on death. Uh, insofar as the fact that we have a very limited amount of time with our lives and it's critically important. And I think when you talked about, which I think you just referred to Dick Pershing and, mm -hmm. and Don Droz. Don uh, Droz, yeah. Droz. Um, that, that they seem to, to have, to carry part of that subtext of the fragility of life, make it count, do something with it that, that actually is gonna leave the world a little better than the way you found it when you got here. Is that an accurate reading? And, and if so, uh, and you've kind of alluded to this, what kind of deaths are we experiencing culturally right now, and where do you see the hope for resurrection and rebirth in addition to voting? Boy, what a wonderful question. No wonder you're the dean of the theology. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, what a great question. Uh, well, yes, the book, uh, the book is meant to, I mean, the title, the title, Every Day is Extra. Uh, you don't have to go to war to adopt the philosophy of every day is extra. But you do have to have a revelation of some kind about your own life, about the life around you, about what's important, what, what you should care about. It has a lot to do with the values, I think, that define the United States of America and what have traditionally organized us. Uh, caring for other people. I mean, de Tocqueville in the 1700s, 1800s, when he visited America, wrote about the singular difference of Americans from other countries, which was, we are charitable. We take care of other people. We have a sense of community. Other places, in many places, don't do that. And people don't share responsibility for each other. So I've always felt that that is a critical component of it. And I think you know, my father's dying was like any, I mean, I write about it, uh, every child, I don't care how old you are, if you're 60 or 70 and you're lucky enough to have parents who are 90-something and they pass away, you are still a child. We're children. And it's a remarkable relationship, which I thought needed to be expressed in terms of uh, uh, sort of what life is about. And, and I thought beginning with his passing was 
a kind of passing of the torch, passing of responsibility. It gave me an opportunity to talk about greatest generation parents in that period of time. And if you trace it, you know, you begin, I mean, I, in the 1940s and the 50s, I can remember them so distinctly. I don't know if others of you do here, but I remember, uh, you know, and much of it defined by music in many ways, culturally. You know, Perry Como, Frank Sinatra, and, and so forth. And then suddenly people went electric, and, you know, Elvis, you know, it was a transition. Then all of a sudden in the early 1960s, rock and roll, uh, and the Beatles, and the Rolling Stones, and the Grateful Dead. Uh, and, and you could sort of trace that transition. So I tried to capture that in the book. Um, in terms of the resurrection that you talk about and, and the, I think you have, it, it's the whole thing that represents that. Um, I mean, uh, I should have been killed many times. When I left country, there were <coughs> hundred and some holes in my boat. Our windows were blown out. I had two bullet holes right above my head, this far above my head. They could have just as well been in my head. Uh, so you learn how it's luck. There's so much luck. And then you try to reconcile that luck with God's will and the whole notion of, uh, you know, did God have a hand in this or didn't did God have a hand in this? And if so, why the differential? Why does Don Droz get a B-40 rocket in his stomach and John Kerry gets to come home? So that's what Every Day is Extra is about. It's a, it's a, it's a recognition of this responsibility for the resurrection that we each have every day in life, in a way. Um, and I, I think uh, it, it's a gift. It's a mystery. I can't explain it all. Uh, but it's, it's enough of a tangible gift that each of us who gets to feel that, and, and mind you, I said it before, you don't have to go to war to feel that. If, if your family had a crisis, if you had a near accident, or if you survived cancer or some illness, you had a heart attack, it doesn't matter. There are loads of things that bring you a lesson about the fragility of life. Your kids are really sick, and you're terrified, and you go to the hospital with them. They have got croup, or they can't breathe, or whatever it is. And you, 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 if you're in touch with things, hopefully you are, you feel that sense of, uh, of gratitude as well as obligation. And I thought that coming out of it, every day of ex is extra means living a life of purpose. Uh, and um, living a life of purpose and trying to give to others and be more involved than just with yourself and help to build community and help to live the values that I think are worth organizing life around. And we're not doing that today. That's what makes me so angry. I mean, how... I don't want to get, you know, Father, forgive me if I get over <laughs> political here. <clears throat> See, that's the, that's the Catholic part of me coming back into it. Forgive me. We're always asking for forgiveness. I mean, I don't know. But um, I'm serious that, that uh, it's depressing for all of us to have such a contrarian example coming out of the White House of the United States of America. It just is contrary to who we are. And, you know, you, you think, I mean, how many of you sat here on that Billy Bush bus interview and didn't say, it's over? There's no way to survive that. But it didn't. 
how many times did we think that the revelation of one person or another person, but 17 or 20, whatever it was, it, 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 it's rubbed past us. But folks, that's, that's partly our fault. It's partly collective uh, lack of sense of shame. There is no shame in what is happening there. And by the way, what makes me just as angry is there is no shame and no sense of responsibility from a whole bunch of people who are in positions of responsibility, who take an oath to uphold the Constitution of the United States and defend our institutions, and who are showing much greater affinity for power and for president and party. And our democracy demands more than that. It's irresponsible. So, you know, that's a, we could talk a lot more, obviously, about the resurrection component of that, because it, it's, and I'm sure as a theologian, you want to. <laughs> it's okay, I can move on to other questions. Okay. I have lots. It's all right. Um, but I, it's fascinating. I, you know, if I went back to college now, I have to tell you truthfully, I'd either sub-major or major in comparative religion. Because, and, and I don't know why in colleges and universities there isn't more discussion of that. And, you know, it, it, because when I was studying political science, I don't think anybody ever talked to me about tribalism. And yet it is so central to what is happening, even in our own country. There is a tribalism manifesting itself that we have to try to deal with politically. Um, and, and it's not you know, well comprehended, but I, so I welcome any of those questions. Okay. Well, well actually, before, before we get to those, and I have some of those as well, but... Um, in reading the book, I also, I also saw two John Kerry's here from, from a professional standpoint. You started out as a political activist, and you, you had all the markings of being, of being a very good one. You ended up uh, in April of 71 when you went before the Foreign Relations Committee. It was piped all over the United States. It ended up creating all kinds of conversations about the Vietnam War, which happened at the same time that you were at that gathering that you referred to. You've also spent, which is incomprehensible to me, 46 years in public service as a politician. And you move from political activist to political leader. And you, you speak about this in the book, but I, you know, because we have many undergraduate and graduate students here who have a desire to make the world a better place, our mission statement says that we're all here to try to create a more just and humane world. That's what we have all signed on for. The guilt you can take or leave, depending upon where your religious heritage is, <laughs> as far as your motivation. But you know, I'm I'm wondering if you could talk about what convinced you to make that pivot. Very easy to to explain, and it's pretty practical. Not any great philosophical revelation or anything like that. Uh, when I came back, ironically, the, the I came back in the spring of 1969, and. Uh, I originally got out of the Navy at the request. I requested of the Admiral, I want to get out. I, I took part surreptitiously in what was called the Vietnam Moratorium, which was a huge event in October of 1969, where people came out on campuses all across the country to demonstrate against the war. And I had been, uh, my sister was very involved in the anti-war movement in New York. I was working for an Admiral. I was still in the military. But I was, that is the point where I was looking for how am I going to start to organize against the war? How am I going to find a platform from which I can tell America what is happening in Vietnam, the truth of what is happening there? 
And I took part in the moratorium, and I was inspired enough by that and by the energy I felt of people coming together trying to make something happen that um, I thought I was going to go back to Massachusetts and run for Congress. And then Father Bob Drynan uh, got in that race, and I you know, pulled out and said, I'm going to support you. And I became a co-chair of his campaign and good friends with Bob Drynan, and, and we went on from there. But what I did become involved in initially was Earth Day. Anybody here who was involved in Earth Day? Look at the hands go up. Great. Yeah, absolutely. Earth Day 1970, folks. It was the first Earth Day. And we were inspired by Rachel Carson's Silent Spring, 1962 book. And back then, people were living next to toxic waste sites that made them ill. You couldn't see across Los Angeles or New York City because the smog was so thick and so forth. So Americans did what a, what a professor of history of mine, John Morton Blum, in a lecture with one of those indelible sentences that stuck with me, said, all politics is a reaction to felt needs. And when he said it, I didn't know what it meant. But boy, do I know what it means now. Felt need. Doesn't have to be a real need. If you feel it, if it's a perception, it's real for politics. And, and everything that happens in politics is that reaction. That's really what explains where we are today, by the way. And I'll come back to that in a minute. But back then, we, uh, we organized around this Earth Day. 20 million Americans came out of their homes. Un it was unprecedented. But then we didn't stop. We targeted the 12 worst votes in Congress. We labeled them the dirty dozen. We went after them in the election, and seven of the 12 lost. You know what happened? <clears throat> Clean Air Act, safe drinking water, marine mammal protection, coastal zone management. The EPA was created and signed into law by Richard Nixon. In other words, we made it a voting issue and took it out to the public and made it part of the next election. And we won. And there's nothing like a bunch of colleagues losing a race for the survivors to get their spines stiffened. <laughs> it works. And that's what happened. So we went on. We had the Watergate class of 1974 when the Congress turned and a whole bunch of young folks come in. And I think we have the ability to do that now. We have the ability to bring an unbelievable number of new people to the Congress and win back our future. So uh, the key here is you've got to believe in your individual power to make that difference. Every big movement in this country of the 1960s, and, I, and but let me be very careful here. There were excesses in the 1960s. I don't sit here and say, wow, we all got to go back to that. Uh, <laughs> there were excesses. There were problems. But what was fabulous about it was the sense of possibility the willingness to act on it, the urgency with which people seized the initiative to make a difference. And that is what drove the civil rights movement. That's what drove Gene McCarthy to go to New Hampshire. Young people, we called them the peanut butter and jelly brigade. People were up there living in 20 to an apartment, you know, making a difference. And when Gene McCarthy got 40 whatever percent, Lyndon Johnson knew he couldn't run again. You made a difference. People did. That's exactly what we need to do now. You can't have 54.2%. I've been to countries where I've been privileged to be a, an observer of elections. And I went to, I've been in Sudan, I've been in the West Bank and Palestine, I've been in Philippines, uh, where I was deeply involved and I write about it here. I've been in uh, Kenya, 
Uh, and, and every place I've been, I've watched in awe as people come out, sometimes with frightening risks, tanks in the streets and, and great oppression, and they vote in 80%, 85%, 90%. And, and we sit around complaining about our government. We complain every day about tweets uh, and whatever, but do we do the hard work of making our democracy function properly? Now, in Washington, state of Washington, Seattle, in Oregon, California, people are more active than other parts of the country. But still, we can do better in terms of the turnout and what we need to do. So I think you, you've just got to understand your own power. Believe in it. And, and look at the experience of what happened with Richard Nixon. He was powerful, 49 states he won, and two years, a year and a half later, he was gone. It can change just like that. My bet is, and I don't want to get ahead of things too much, but I'll, I got to tell you, when, when I wake up in the morning and they're attacking me because I happen to meet at an international conference with the foreign minister of another country, right? Uh, I met you know, in, in Oslo at a peace conference in, in the UN General Assembly in New York and at the Munich Security Conference, and they say, oh, this was illegal, you can't do this. You know what they're doing? They're trying to distract from the reality that that was the same day that Manafort was talking to Robert Mueller and copped a plea. That's the day the art of the deal became the art of the squeal, and everything <laughs> changed. So, you know, that's where we are. So I've learned about all that. I don't believe, you know, it's a sad thing about America now. It's hard to figure out what the facts are, right? But how can a democracy work if you can't figure out the facts? How do we make a decision about global climate change that's going to save the planet, which, frankly, we need to do? I've studied that issue. I've been part of that for 35 years. Scientists are telling us what's happening. California's on fire. Other states are on fire. You see these floods, these incredible floods. And, and, and by the way, this has always been a wrestling match in terms of religion. You can go back to, to the, uh, the great tsunami and earthquake of, of Lisbon and, and uh, the writings of, of Rousseau. And, you know, uh, uh, it's, it, it, it was a, a huge debate about how could something like this happen. It changed the notion, the belief systems of Europe about religion at that point in time. And we still wrestle with it. You know, I don't want to divert off into that at this point, but I just say to everybody here, um, our democracy is really threatened, and there are major reasons why, and we all have to be practical about it. One, there is simply too much money in American politics, and we have to get the money out of the system. Two, there is, we don't have a legitimate democracy right now. And the reason we don't have a legitimate democracy is, with gerrymandering, you cannot have a legitimate election in the general election in this country. And number three, I, 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 I you know, I'm not comfortable uh, with this reality because this is the United States of America, but the truth is we have a level of overt corruption in the system. And that corruption, whether it's emoluments <coughs> violations 
or whether it's outright, you see it in the indictments and other things happening. I mean, look at 14 people have already pled guilty in the course of this. So that is corruption. They're pleading guilty. And, and, and we have to win back a sense of propriety and honesty and caring about how people perform public service in this country. It's not that the rules of the Senate have changed. Gary Locke, you know, was your governor and was our great ambassador in China who's here, uh, you know, understands this. Anybody who's been elected understands this, that, uh, that, that you need to have, it's not the rules of the Senate that changed, it's the people. And it began in 1994 with the Gingrich Revolution. It then moved into the Tea Party, and then from the Tea Party. And, and what did they do? The, the Tea Party and the Freedom Caucus, they, they promised smaller government, less regulation, get rid of Roe v. Wade, run the list of things, right? No ta less taxation, da, da, da. And it didn't happen for any of them. Along comes Donald Trump. Along comes Bernie Sanders on the other side. And right, left are really angry, and so's the center. But the center doesn't manifest it the same way as the right and left. But people are rightfully really angry about the dysfunctional Congress, the inability of their felt needs to be addressed. And that anger is manifesting itself increasingly, not just here, but in Italy, in Bulgaria, Poland, and places across the country, where people move away from democracy towards myth that somehow demagoguery and authoritarianism is going to supplant it and make a better decision. I don't believe that. And all you have to do is look at the history of Europe, where inherent bigotry and weak economy and fear about the economy, coupled with, uh, with uh, uh, demagoguery, produced two world wars, the Holocaust, and a record of remarkable killing of fellow human beings. And the reason EU came together was not to create an economic movement. It was to stop Europeans from killing each other. That's really what the motivation was. So I think this is a very dangerous time. I think the United States needs to reclaim its mantle of leadership on a global basis because we have to deal with climate change, we have to deal with extremism, we have to deal with two billion kids between the ages of 15 and 24 who go off into craziness because their countries aren't responding, and 1.8 billion children who are 15 years old or younger, 300 million of whom will not go to school at all in their lives. But guess what, they've all got smartphones. They know what everybody in the world has, which also means they know what they don't have. That is not a problem for over there. That's a problem for everybody in this country if we want to have security for the long term. So we've got to be engaged, not retreating. America first cannot mean America alone. We've got to be prepared to live out the role that created this set of values that countries all around the world have organized around for more than 70 years now. And I regret that the current administration's moving away from that in ways that I think are very dangerous for the future. One of the things that, that really stands out in the book are, to me, are lots of vignettes about your, your very heartfelt encounter with different types of people. And it, and it, it seems to me that, um, that, that these encounters actually elicited compassion from you, which seems to 
have been a fuel that has kind of carried you through much of your political activism and your legal activism. I, one particular one stood out for me where you were taking one of your shipmates to a medical unit for treatment and you saw oh, yeah. a, a Vietnamese man bleeding to death mm. and, you, and you very beautifully and poignantly explained what that was like to watch a human being like that and you started asking questions about what is our role as Americans in this particular culture and, and what are we doing to these people and do they want us and that sort of thing. Could you, could you talk, we, we seem to have a kind of a, along with the things you've been talking about, we seem to have a, a deficit with compassion. The whole notion of suffering with others seems to be at, a, at one of the lowest ebbs, at least in my life. And I'm wondering if, how you personally keep that cultivated in your life. Because when you start talking about these public policy issues, you, you're carrying a passion with you that I suspect, having read your book, is kind of born at least in, in large part by the virtue of compassion, you feel their pain. Well, I, you know, Mark, it's interesting. I, I do. I don't claim any personal virtue for it. I think there are lots of people who feel that. I, I know you do. I know you teach it here at, at, in, 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 in the values that are imbued in people here. And it's certainly one of the virtues of, of religion. I mean, that's one of the reasons, uh, I mean, that's one of the reasons I am today a person of faith, because um, those are the teachings. I mean, uh, Matthew, you know, 25, and uh, the verses of the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, we grew up with that. I grew up with that. I grew up with John Paul, you know, with, uh, with uh, John 23rd. And, and uh, it, it was a different time, and different sense of responsibility back then, frankly. Uh, and we weren't as fixated on you know, one or two issues. But I write about this in the book, and I write about what was asked of me in the course of the campaign back in 2004. Uh, president Kennedy, when he ran for president, had to um, make sure that people understood in his famous speech that he gave in Texas that he was the Democratic nominee for president of the United States who happened to be Catholic. And his obligation was to try to convince people in the country that he was not so Catholic, it would change it. My obligation suddenly became, I have to prove to people I was Catholic enough. <laughs> and, and when I took the bishop's letter, which is quite a, it's a remarkable letter, it's a very responsible letter, you should all go and read it, about they put out at election time, which documents all the issues they have, including death penalty, uh, you know, health, poverty, I mean, all of these issues. On nine out of 10 of them, I came out in the right place. My opponent didn't. He, he fried more people than any uh, you know, governor in, in the country back at that time in the, with, uh, executing the death penalty. So I was always opposed to the death penalty because of my teaching. It was an 80% against me issue when I ran for the Senate you know, in, in, in Massachusetts. And I said, I'm opposed to it. I don't believe the state should be killing people. And I still got elected. And I've never sort of wavered on that. But um, you, you, I think, so I grew up learning that you do it, number one. Number two, I think I had an inherent sense of it. I don't know why. I remember walking, I don't write about this in the book, but I remember walking down the street in Washington, D.C. I was with my father, and we passed this parking lot where no cars were parked. And I saw this old guy sitting there, and I, and I you know, I was very upset. I think I cried. I said to my father, why doesn't he have any cars parked? This is terrible. So I've always had a sense of, uh, of, 
obligation of right or wrong and of the need to try to uh, make a difference. I thank my parents for that. I thank my family for that. I thank my family for the sense of environmental stewardship. I mean, all my family members that I grew up with from the get-go taught me basic lessons about respect for an ecosystem, respect for the environment, respect for the ocean, respect for things around you. And I just find it's also common sense. How, how can you live in a destructive uh, way that, that you throw junk out of your car? I've seen, I saw people littering the other day. It drives me crazy. How can you do that? How can you destroy the life around you uh, and not be responsible for it? And there is creation care in every major religion, every major philosophy of life. Hindu, Confucianism, uh, I mean, whatever. And also the three major the Abrahamic religions. And if you read the compare, this is what fascinates me so much, because there was, you know, most of history was oral back in the early days. So it was passed on orally um, and, and then recorded. And there are great similarities in certain passages, as you know better than anybody. Um, and I think we have to look for that commonality more than looking for the, the differences. But there are people in the world, for instance, uh, in the Quran, uh, who find the passages that work for them and detract from the whole to take pieces and unfortunately organize themselves around it. And ISIS and other people are terrible aberrations of all of this, and that's part of our struggle here on Earth. But um, I, I really believe that uh, uh, this f fundamental notion is, is part of what Americans organize themselves around. I don't think it's special to me, Mark. I think that we're, you know, uh, people are taught to give, people in almost every major religion. You, you tithe, uh, you give, you, you are engaged in the community, you take care of your neighbor. Uh, this is how the world can work better. And it's one of the reasons I, I you know, I, I got to step into dangerous territory here, but I, I, uh, I think you have to look at these things a little more broadly than some people want to. I mean, what are there, 31 or 32 Christian sects in Jerusalem, most of them armed, uh, and there are X number of Protestant sects, et cetera. I was privileged to go to a, I went to an Episcopalian school as a kid, even though my, I was raised Catholic, and confirmed in First Communion. I write about it in the, in the book, and I was very excited about it. And, um, uh, but I also had exposure to Episcopalian education in, in, in uh, high school. And, uh, and I'm glad for that, which has made me somewhat of an ecumenicist, in a sense, and less tied down to the specific uh, human and in many cases, male-defined uh, ways to think about these things. Uh, and, and I think we have to look at the broader array of what it all means and how we work together, because we can't all be right. I mean, we can't, you know, we can't all be wrong, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so so this, is a, this is a question from the audience, but I'd like to frame it uh, against the backdrop of a section of your book where you're speaking more, uh, more directly to how your faith evolved once you got into the Senate. And, and the passage where you talk about going to the Senate prayer breakfast, and, yeah. you, and you were kind of mute for 
quite a while where you went, and then you finally tried to, to, you tried to synthesize in some ways or integrate your faith with the experience you had in Vietnam with some of the things that you had encountered in humans poorly treating each other and in the, in the environment. And there's, there's one section in which you, when you finally do um, speak at that group, to that group, you, um, you credited John Paul II's apostolic letter, uh, Salvifici Dolores, the meaning of human suffering, is introducing you to the notion of a kind of a salvific suffering. And then you say that after that, um, another senator, Ted Stevens, who was a big fan of Arctic drilling, uh, and for whom you had many other disagreements, came up to you and shared the, the fact that it really touched him the way you talked. Yeah. Because he had been in a, in a plane crash, and his, his, his wife, Anne, he watched her die next to him. And this is what you write in the book. I never looked at Ted Stevens in the same way that day. No matter what side of a debate we'd be on, because of the common ground we found together that morning. Could you share, um, let me just quote that and then let me ask this question rather than the one that I had. In the midterm elections uh, do turn the tide, how do we keep the Democrats from responding in kind as they take power? How do we return to a functioning bipartisan Congress that is dedicated to the public good? You seem to have find, found with, and you talk about with Stevens that you were able to to, to yeah. have a friendship with him despite your ideological differences. And is, is that part of the way we get back, where we learn to fight and argue but transcend it because of we have a common humanity at some point that we share with each other? Well, I believe so. I do believe that. It doesn't mean we're going to get there. Uh, but yes, I, be I believe that very, very deeply. I mean, gosh, look, folks. I. I use the example in the book also of John McCain. I mean, Ted Stevens lost his wife in a plane crash, and he was holding her in his arms, and she died. And, and, and uh, he could never, never understand why that happened. Or it just was a, you know, it was a loss that he was not able to get over. And many people suffer that. War, in many ways, is a breeding ground for atheism, because it's pretty hard in war. When you look at what happens to people and what you do to people and what people do to each other, to say, wow, this is God's plan? Uh, and, and, and why did God pick him? And so forth and so on. And, and uh, it's difficult. Uh, and I think all human beings struggle with that. They struggle with the issue of human suffering. My father went through that, and I write about <clears throat> it. I mean, my father lost his father to suicide at age six. Six years old, loses his dad. And then uh, his sister, who's seven years older than him, who he idolizes, gets polio. And she's in a wheelchair for the rest of her life. And I remember my dad just struggling. I mean, I asked him these questions at some point in my adolescence, and he just couldn't get over it. I mean, there's no way to get over it and say, you know, I, I, I can say, you know, this was God's concept. John Paul II, um, who was shot four times, uh, uh, wrote uh, a papal in, uh, you know, letter, apostolic letter, in which he uh, writes about this, Salvici Dolores, in which he, he talks about uh, salvific suffering, which is a suffering that, from which we draw faith a suffering from which we understand through the pain and the suffering itself, uh, it puts you in touch with 
Jesus's sacrifice and, and, and what the meaning of that sacrifice is and why it opens you up to actually love and the possibility of embracing uh, faith. Now, I didn't, you know, I still had trouble getting beyond, I mean, which is going back to the Lisbon earthquake, which is Voltaire. Voltaire and Rousseau were going back and forth. You should read the, that debate. Um, but how do, you, how do you then reconcile, you know, the, the Hawaii, um, Hawaii uh, volcano? Uh, or the tsunami in Japan. I mean, is, is God trying to wipe us out? Is that another, you know, 40 days of rain and we're supposed to be in an ark? I don't know the answer to that completely, except that I know that uh, that's when I really sort of became aware that, that you don't have a linear answer to all this. You're never going to get a linear answer to all of it. That's where faith comes in. But there, there, if you look at the teachings and you read enough of the scriptures and you get a sense of the history of this, of Christ's ministry over three years and what it did and what it meant. I mean, that comes from reality. I mean, that was lived. That was real. You know, Paul on the road to Damascus, all these things are real. And, and the letters are contemporaneous in many cases and, you know, within X number of years written down. So, uh, you draw from all of that, and I'm really summarizing here, folks. I'm racing quickly, but you draw from all of that, I think, ultimately, a sense of, of uh, veracity. And the fundamentals of it lead you ultimately to the bigger questions of the universe and where we come from and you know, how the first gas exploded or what happened, et cetera. And I think the creation story is uh, sort of a, uh, a shorthand version of how we all get here and where we come from. And in the end, it strengthens my faith. It gives me a sense that it can only come from this powerful being. There's no way to explain the beauty of flowers, the fact that we know they're beautiful, the fact that we can draw distinctions between good and bad, the fact that we can, uh, you know, show compassion that lots of other living things on earth can't do, the fact that we uh, have so much rational determination in our lives. I mean, I look at all of that and I say, there's a purpose. There is a purpose. And you draw out of that the leap of faith, which is what I write about in the book, that you won't get all the answers. Um, but you take enough out of those scriptures and enough out of that journey that you get to a place where I don't find it so hard to say, you know what, I'm comfortable putting my belief system into the hands of a supreme being uh, because there really isn't any other explanation. And that's not a bad place to wind up. Thank you. This, uh, this is another uh, a question from the audience, but I'd like to put it in the context of another section in your book. Uh, many college-age students feel a disconnect with history and do not believe much of what they hear. You, um, another, another really moving uh, part of this book is when you were on your long flight with John McCain, and yeah. you ended up building that relationship, and the two of you ended up trying to normalize relationships with Vietnam. And you, you speak of specifically of your attempt to try to resolve the, the um, kind of fake news of the time of POWs and MIAs still being alive and imprisoned or in tiger cages. 
And you, it, you seem to have taken an enormous amount of, of patience, particularly with Senator Bob Smith, in going and, and helicoptering into towns and, and uh, prisons in Vietnam unannounced so you could check to see if Americans w were actually there. Mm -hmm. And then there's a section that's actually somewhat kind of almost humorous where you go into the tunnels <laughs> under the Ho Chi Minh it is Memorial. And, and, and could you talk a little bit about that? And does that, sure. your ability to be able to address the fake news of that era, is there anything that can inform us on how we do a frontal assault on? Well, that's a really, again, a really good question, Mark. I think the answer is you have to exhaust the possibilities on the other side. Uh, you're not going to bludgeon people into it. You're not going to uh, uh, necessarily convince them on a rational basis. You've got to show. You've got to really play it out. And that's what we did in, in the POW-MIA thing. Folks, just so you understand this, in 1990, 91, on the cover of Newsweek magazine, back in a time when we had covers of magazines and people read them, uh, <laughs> There was a picture of prisoners of war in Vietnam with the, with the headline, Are They Still Alive? And there was this mythology that had grown up in America. Not just mythology. There were legitimate questions that had been asked. People were last seen alive somewhere. Nobody knows where they went. Uh, could they have been held prisoner somewhere? So there, this evidence all came into the Defense Department, intelligence agency, and elsewhere. So we knew there was this stuff around. And certain people on the right really made this a cause celeb. And, and uh, it, it captured the American imagination because of Rambo and, and the films and the idea of tiger cages. So John McCain and I were flying to Kuwait on a plane, assigned opposite each other in seats, because it was done by seniority. And we spent, the night, you know, we spent a good part of the night talking to each other for the first time. John was a prisoner of war five and a half years. I was a protester against the war. The, the guys who were prisoners didn't love the guys who protested, and the guys who were protested thought that everybody else had prolonged the war. So there was a real tension in America about this. And John and I, in that conversation on the plane, which I write, was perhaps the most important conversation I had when I was in the United States Senate. Because we decided, the two of us, to work together, Democrat, Republican, War protester, prisoner of war. And we said several things. We said, we're still not at peace with Vietnam or with ourselves. And we've got to find a way to change this dynamic. The only place to begin was to begin by answering the question of whether anybody was left alive. Because you have to answer that as a matter of moral obligation for military service. You don't leave people behind, and you can't rush to lift the embargo or rush to normalize if, if people think people are alive. So John and I became part of the POW-MIA committee. We had hearings. We had loads of people come in. We worked with the H.W. Bush administration, General Vesey, uh, with uh, uh, General Brent Scowcroft, both terrific public servants and not political and, and partisan. So we worked together, and, and John suffered enormously in this uh, by insult, because some of these right-wingers started to go after him. They accused him of being the Manchurian candidate. They accused him of, of, of you know, betraying his fellow prisoners and so forth, because he had serious questions about the evidence. And he knew that the prisoners had all memorized a 
that had a code. They memorized every single person who was taken prisoner. They all shared it. They had a code where they'd tap out on the wall, and they knew who had come in and who had gone and who was a prisoner. So he just didn't buy a lot of this, and he had a reason not to. And, and so we, we, we spent a couple of years going through this process of trying to resolve the questions. I went to Vietnam maybe 25 times during this time as a senator. But finally, we were about to write the report when Senator Bob Smith of New Hampshire, who, who was a very honorable, legitimate you know, uh, advocate for, for, for getting the answers. But he was, he was a little over the top occasionally in believing evidence that wasn't necessarily believable. But he came in and said, look, I'm not signing this report. We can't sign off this. We're not going to have a unanimous report. And, and unanimity was critical to killing this notion that people were alive. And Bob said, there may be people underneath the tomb of Ho Chi Minh. And we have to go on it. We, we have to, somebody has to figure out how we're going to find out if there are corridors or if there are hidden prison camp under the square in the middle of Hanoi. Uh, <laughs> so I, I knew we had to figure out a way. I, I flew from Washington on a Thursday night all the way to Bangkok, got a military plane in Bangkok, flew to Hanoi, had 12 hours on the ground. I met with the president of Vietnam, the secretary general of the Communist Party, and the prime minister. And I looked at them and I said, Guys, I apologize. I, I, you know, I, this is going to be a, a tough conversation, but we Americans have to go under Ho Chi Minh's tomb <laughs> and look at what's going on. And I swear to God, this guy who was fairly dark-skinned turned white. <laughs> and I looked at him and I said, "Boy, this whole thing's going to come apart here. This is crazy." So I spent some time sitting under this massive statue of Ho Chi Minh talking about Ho, who's lying in state there, and, and everybody can see him. It's one of those, like, like Lenin or Stalin, you know, they preserve these guys. And <laughs> <laughs> so um, I go back wondering if I'd won the day, and I get a phone call before I have to fly back to the Senate. And they say to me, you have to follow our rules. We're going to allow you to go down. Nobody must know about this. And swear to God, for 30 years, whatever it is, I've never told anybody. The first time I've done it is, is in this book, because we told them we at some point later on we'll talk about it. But uh, they said, you, you, OK, you can go down there. So I fly back with Senator Bob Smith. And under the rules, at 4 o'clock in the morning, when nobody is around, Bob Smith and I show up to report to go at the edge of the square, go down under the, the square and through these corridors. So here I am, I'm walking dead of morning, I'm exhausted. Bob Smith is opening doors, shutting doors, walking into corridors, looking for Americans. And I'm, uh, and, and I'm, uh, I'm mesmerized by the fact that there are these machines there uh, that are going gurgle, gurgle, chuggle, chuggle, blurp, blurp, you know, punching thermaldehyde through Ho, who's upstairs above me. And, and you know, I'm looking at these pipes and these tubes and all this, and I said, what in God's name did we do down here uh, underneath Ho Chi Minh's tomb? Uh, it was the most single bizarre thing I think I've probably ever done. <laughs> uh, but there were moments like, look, we're living in bizarre times. You know, the other day, how many of you have ever heard of, you know, InfoWars? Well, InfoWars the other day announced 
that you know Hurricane Lane that was barreling towards um, Hawaii? It announced that Hurricane Lane was split in two by an energy beam that was fired from Antarctica by me. <laughs> kid you not. You know, I'm ki I kid you not. And, and I mean, how do people get something so wrong? I fired the damn thing from the North Pole. I mean, God, it was, this is crazy. But, uh, you know, I don't know, folks. Uh, we have to win back. Uh, there are no alternative facts, let me just say that. We have to win back a basis of how we're going to make these kinds of decisions. Can I mention one thing? You didn't ask the question, but I, sure. I really feel compelled to say, talk about this to all of you here. <clears throat> and I talk about it wherever I go, and that's, it's so important. Um, I am not a doomsday you know, uh, prophesizer about climate change, but science is science. And facts are facts. Um, I was there in 1988 when Jim Hansen, first of the NASA, uh, first said, climate change is here and it's happening. By the way, the first theory was pronounced by a guy named Arrhenius. He was a Swedish scientist in 1898. First talked about what fossil fuels could do to, to the greenhouse gas effect. And, and for all of you who know science, you know that life would not exist on Earth if we did not have that thin veneer of, of, of containment of gas, the greenhouse gas effect, it's called greenhouse because greenhouses contain heat. And the greenhouse gas effect contains a sufficient heat that the average temperature of the planet is 57 degrees Fahrenheit, or has been. That's changing. And the reason it's changing is that the gases we release, CO2, methane, et cetera, are, are contained within the outer atmospheric layer. And that then makes it harder for other heat to, to get out, and Earth warms. So we now have had, last year was the hottest year in recorded history. The last decade is the hottest decade in recorded history. Uh, last July, a year ago, hottest July in recorded history. Last year, we had in February, first time ever in the Arctic, above freezing. And the decade before the hottest decade is the second hottest decade in history. And the decade before the second was the third hottest decade in, in history. So after 30 years of this increase, watching, and I've seen these lines. I've, I've been to the Arctic. I've been to the Antarctic. I've seen the lines where the glaciers used to come to. You can go to our own glaciers in America and see them. They're reduced, significantly going down. We now have an open sea in the Northwest Passage in the summer. We have greater fires. Why do we have greater fires? Because we have more rainfall that creates brush where it didn't used to be, and then we have a drought, and it dries out, and it all burns. So the intensity of the fires is up. We have much greater moisture coming out of the ocean because it's warmer going into our storms. So last year, three storms alone, Maria, Puerto Rico, Harvey in Texas, and Irma in the East Coast. Irma had the first storm recorded, sustained over 48 hours, over 24 hours, sustained 185 miles an hour wind. Irma, uh, that's Irma. 
Maria, we all know what happened, and Harvey dropped as much water in five days as goes over Niagara Falls in an entire year. And folks, this is unprecedented. It's called a 50,000-year flood. The only problem is we're having 50,000-year and 5,000-year, 10,000-year floods more frequently. Now, this, I think, is something that we have to accept as our responsibility to do something about. Just the other day, you pick up the newspaper and the administration announces it's relaxing the rules on methane. Methane is 20 times more dangerous and powerful in its destructive force in climate change than CO2. Those three storms I just mentioned cost the United States of America taxpayers $265 billion. That's one-third of the entire defense budget for a year, but it's more money than seven departments, including the Education Department, the Commerce Department, and, and five other departments of our government all together. This is insanity. We can't find $100 billion to put into the Green Climate Fund that we pledged in the Paris Accords that I was privileged to negotiate, and, and, and yet we spend $265 billion of your money, throw it away for a storm to clean up, and it's going to happen again. So I, I, I really get angry about this. The decision of Donald Trump to pull out of the Paris Accords is irresponsible, not based on any science whatsoever, and it is going to cost lives. It's going to cost billions of dollars of property. And here's the rub. The solution to climate change is not something that is out in the future that we have to wait to find. We know what it is. We have it. It's called energy policy. Energy policy is the solution to climate change. So right now, solar contracts are being let for three cents a kilowatt hour. That is better than coal. We can, we can, we can do what we need to do with alternative renewable, with gas, with natural gas, which is 50% reduction of the emissions of, of oil and, and coal. Coal is the dirtiest fuel of all. Last year in the United States of America, 75% of the new electricity that came online in our country was solar. Did you know that? The marketplace is making the decision. But our government is getting in the way and stopping them from moving in the direction we ought to go. So all I can say to you is, folks, this is curable. We do not have to sit here and march like lemmings over the cliff. And we have the ability to make the choices to have the energy that we want. And here's the beautiful thing that comes out of this. This is why I am optimistic. It's why I believe in the future. In Paris, we sent a message knowledgeably that we were not able to hold, we, were, we weren't going to come out of there with a guarantee we were holding the Earth's rise of temperature to two degrees centigrade, which scientists say is the tipping point. What we knew we were doing was sending a message to the marketplace that 196 countries are going to move in the same direction at the same time, and money will then move to the investment because this is the biggest market the world has ever seen. It's a four to five billion user market today, and it's going to go up to nine billion as the population grows in the next 30 years. It's already a multi-trillion dollar market. That's the biggest market in the world. The market that we had in Massachusetts when a lot of people in California in the 1990s, a lot of money was made in tech, that was a one trillion dollar market with a billion users. So you get the sense of the differential here. So we have to commit, we have to, commit to this, folks.
And here, here is especially why. In the introduction, it was noted that I've got you know, five kids, three blended, two biological, and I have seven grandchildren. A lot of you here have kids and grandchildren. You know what I'm talking about. This century, we are headed right now towards not two degrees, but four degrees centigrade rise in the temperature. And the catastrophe that can follow that it will shock the world. You think migration is bad in Europe today? Wait till you have half of North Africa trying to get into a place where they have water and food. Wait till you see what happens with refugees. Wait till you see what happens with the lack of water. You have wars over water today. You have certainly conflict. So this is a matter, you know, we buy insurance for our homes so they don't, if they burn, we, we take care. We buy insurance for cars. We have a car crash. We buy life insurance. We buy insurance. We're not buying insurance for the earth and for our own lives in the ecosystem that we live in. And it's true of the oceans, too. 51% of our oxygen comes from the oceans, and we're busy polluting the oceans, overfishing the oceans, too much money chasing too few fish, et cetera. Mark, I have to, I have to wrap this into, okay, so why is John Kerry telling you this book is optimistic and I'm optimistic? I'll tell you why. <laughs> I'm gonna tell you why. Because you don't hear about it, and we should, and a lot of people aren't aware of the degree to which this is true, but we are making remarkable progress as human beings on this planet. We are currently curing diseases we never thought we'd cure. We're wiping them out. We have specialized, focused treatment now for cancer because of the genome, what we now understand about human bodies. We're living longer. We're living longer and living better than we ever lived before. You used to shrivel up and die if you had a bad hip because you couldn't move. Now you can have a hip replacement. Now you can have a knee replacement. Now you live longer, you live better. The quality of life is better than it's ever been for people in the industrial world and in developed countries. But if you're a woman somewhere in the world today, anywhere in the world, you are 50% more likely if pregnant to live through your pregnancy and your child is 50% more likely to actually uh, you know, live and, and be fed and go to school. When I was in college, severe poverty on this planet was 50%. Now, because of what we've done, all of us, it is below 10% severe poverty. 450 million people have come out of poverty in China. 400 million in India. Uh, 15 years ago, Korea was an aid recipient country. Today, it's a donor country. So I look around, look at, look at the people who are dying today. Yes, it's horrible to see someone in an orange jumpsuit have their head cut off, and it's horrible to face an evil like ISIS. ISIS is evil. There is a presence of evil in many things on Earth, and ISIS is one of them. But we fought back. I led the coalition, 68-plus countries we put together to go back and fight ISIS. And one of my complaints in our own administration was I thought we should be doing it faster. Although we could have done it faster, because every day ISIS was alive, I saw more migration to Europe, more disruption politically in the world. And, 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 and but that's another challenge. But folks, we defeated, we're gonna defeat them, at least in terms of the immediate threat. The question is, are we gonna defeat them in the long run because of those two billion children <coughs> who need to be included and brought in? So everything I look at today is a challenge. Fewer people are dying violently today than at any time in the last century. 
And the challenge today, except for Putin and Crimea, is not, and, and Ukraine, is not state-on-state state war and violence. It's non-state actors who are the malevolent forces of the world today. It's the Al-Qaeda's, the Al-Nusra's, the Boko Haram's, and the other. But we have the ability to beat that if we organize ourselves. That's why our democracy is so critical today. Winston Churchill summarized it. He said, democracy is the worst form of government there is, except for everything else. <laughs> Think about it, folks. So I, I believe, uh, you know, President Kennedy said it in his inaugural address. I, 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 I believe it. There's all the problems we face on this planet, with the exception of, of natural disasters, all the other things are God are, 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 are human creation. I never met a child two and a half years old who hates anybody. Have you? Two and a half years old? No way. Three? No. Maybe by four and five they begin to get a little ideas. <laughs> Why? Well, they certainly hate their broccoli or their other stuff, but they don't hate. But people know. Tribalism is taught. Hate is taught. Discrimination is taught. It's a weakness. And it takes strong people to fight back against it. And that's our great sense of responsibility and obligation now, is to fight back on these things. We're, we're, you know, we have an ability to live longer, do better, cure things, make things happen, if we decide to do it. And not everybody in the world is as lucky as you all are we all are, to be able to make those choices about their lives. There's still too many oppressed people. There's still too many people victimized. There's too many people human trafficked. There's a lot to do out there. But I guarantee you, if you think about it, it's doable. It is doable. We can solve climate change. We can build the energy future. We can build our own infrastructure. We can build the future. We're just not choosing to do it. And I think that's one of the reasons why people are so angry, so disaffected today. Because they're not being offered those choices. And they know it. So uh, if there's anything that comes out of this book, and, 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 the last word I, and the last word I write in the book is onward. We gotta go forward. We've gotta make these choices. Uh, and, and that makes life worth living. Would, uh, in, in, in your book, in, in, in your book, you, you kind of characterize yourself as a less than focused undergraduate student. You played. You it's played, true. It's true. You it's played. True. You played. I'm soccer. not proud of it, by the way. I was. <laughs> I did a lot of extracurricular activities. Well, you played soccer. You played I lacrosse. I played soccer. Right? I played hockey. Person. I played lacrosse. I was on the debate team. I was the international debate team. And we were undefeated. We did well and things. So I, I wasn't completely a, uh, I just did other things. Yeah. Wasn't it Mark Twain who said, never let an education, get, or never let school get in the way of an education? <laughs> I didn't. I didn't. <laughs> well, since, uh, since uh, Seattle University recently moved to Division I athletics, is there anything from your years of competitive sports that has served you well? Oh, and in your no. career? are you kidding? I, I learned so much on the playing fields about getting down into your gut, drawing out of yourself, about teamwork, uh, about uh, losing, 
and coming back. I mean, the lessons of, of, of uh, they're, they're valuable as long as you've got the right coach and the right attitude about it. Some of them can be bad if you don't. Uh, but I learned an enormous amount uh, in high school, playing sports, and in college. And, and I also learned, you know, the military was a great graduate school for me because uh, it was before I obviously went to law school. But I learned leadership. I learned hierarchy. I learned responsibility. I learned about the interaction with other people who work for you, uh, albeit in the military structure. But still, if you're going to be successful as an officer, you learn this. I learned it right away. Just because you've earned your bar and you're an ensign in the United States Navy does not mean when you report to a ship you know anything. And if you report to that ship and pretend you do, you're going to get killed. If you report to that ship and you start talking to your chiefs and talking to the guys who've been there 20 years and you respect their knowledge, you can become a, you learn how to be a good officer. So I learned all that, and it, it served me, you know, it served me very, very well through uh, all the other positions that I've had, running a State Department with, well, I think what we have, 700,000 folks around the world in, in the entire department. I mean, it's a pretty big place. Embassies and so forth. Uh, and Gary will tell you, I think, uh, I, think we, uh, I think we probably dealt with more crises to greater effect all simultaneously than any other administration at any time in our history. I, th I think we've run out the clock. I'm Actually, sorry. Uh, Gary, sir. Will term limits help Congress function a little more efficiently? No. It'll make Congress totally supplicant to lobbyists. Nothing will ever happen because nobody will ever know anything when they go to Congress. I value experience. The problem with people who stay there too long and aren't in touch with their constituencies is the problem of too much money in American politics and the fact that you don't have these legitimate elections where average people can run for office without having to find extraordinary amounts of money. So I, I always oppose term limits. And term limits is, a, is, a, is the wrong way to think about how you get out. You will have perpetual freshmen in, in office, and they won't know what they're doing, and the people who will write the legislation will be the people you hate who you don't want taking your future away from you. Don't let term limits seduce you from the real stuff of reform in our country, which are the things that I talked about. So it's a very good book. Please buy it. it it's for sale out here. Um, please thank Secretary Kerry. Thank you all.